so this past week, uh, I think it was on Wednesday, um, there was a fire alarm company here because our fire alarms, the panel out there will just randomly start beeping all the time. And it's really loud and it's kind of annoying. It's not kind of annoying. It's really annoying. And, uh, and it's been going on for a while. So these guys came out and they're checking out the panel. And uh, we were, we had, of course, we had 5 a.m. prayer and and then after prayer, we're a few people hanging out, talking. We're talking. And uh, I'm back in the family room back there, our group's family room. And I'm talking to uh, Ruth, our connections pastor. We're hanging out. Now, the guys had come in and said, hey, we're going to test the fire alarm system. So in about five minutes, the fire alarm's going to be going off. And we're like, okay, cool. He's like, so don't, you know, you don't need to run out of the building because there's fire. Just so you know, we're testing the system. Cool, thanks for letting us know. He goes out. We just keep talking. Of course, we get into a very deep conversation about ministry and God, and we're just talking. And, you know, you're in this deep conversation, and all of a sudden, I about jump out of my skin because the fire alarm starts going off. And, I mean, if you've never been sitting directly under a fire alarm with in a room with an 11-foot ceiling, not a 20-foot ceiling, but an 11-foot, and it's right above your head, um, I, I needed to go check myself in the bathroom to make sure that I was still clean for the day, if you know what I mean. Like, it was super loud. And we were in this deep conversation. We're like, yeah. And we were like, bah! you know? And then we just sat there. And it's like, you want to keep talking? Like, oh, it's the, oh, that's right. And you can't even talk, because it's just like, ah, ah, ah. And we're just like, and finally, after like a minute, I just looked at her. I go, I'm going to go to the bathroom. She's like, okay. And I just like walked out. Like, might as well take advantage of this time. I, I actually had to go to the bathroom. I didn't actually go check myself. So, all right. And it's funny because he told us in about five minutes, the fire alarm's going to go off. And yet when the fire alarm went off, I was shocked and appalled and, and thought I might die, right? I was like, oh my goodness. It was scary. And then I had that moment. Oh yeah, that's right. That's what this is. This is what's happening. And then there was still a period of time where we had to deal with it. And we had to battle what was, what was going on inside of us as it was like oppressive in our spirit, if you know what I'm saying. And I feel like that is the concept of spiritual warfare in the church. It's like we hear about it every now and then. We kind of vaguely know there's this spiritual war going on somewhere, probably in Africa somewhere. But we, for some reason, don't think it's really going to affect us too much unless and until many people uh, encounter some sort of very real spiritual warfare, some sort of very real demonic force, some sort of very real demonic entity, whatever, whatever that looks like, you know, the whole haunted house thing, nightmares, depression, anxiety, it, it, it could look a lot of different ways, you know, some of your family members, some of you are convinced, some of you are here today, because we said we'd be talking about spiritual warfare, and you're like, I'm convinced one of my family members is possessed, and I'm going to come find out how to help them, all right, that was a bit of a joke, but maybe not so much, because uh, you're pretty serious today. But it's in those moments when an alarm goes off and we go, oh, oh, crap. Like, oh, crud, what do I do now? This, this battle's really real. And this is most people's experience with 
evil with true spiritual warfare. They vaguely know about it. And then a moment comes where it's like, oh my goodness, this is the real deal. And then the alarm's going off. It's screaming in their mind and they don't know what to do because they've never been trained. They've never been equipped. They don't even know what's going on. We're totally unaware of it until it's right in our face, and then we don't know what to do. You know, there are people in our culture who, when really bad stuff happens, like, boom, like you're driving in the car, and boom, somebody gets T-boned right in front of you. You know, that type of situation, emergency situations. There's people in our culture who, when those things happen, they don't just go into shock and freak out like most of us. They jump into action. And the reason they jump into action is because they've been trained in advance. They know what to do. And even though there's an initial moment of like, oh, my goodness, somebody just got T-boned. They go, wait a second. I'm a paramedic. I'm an EMT. I know exactly what to do. And they don't run from the battle. They run to the battle to help those who are involved. That's what Jesus wants for his church. He wants us equipped. He wants us trained. So that when something happens, when we encounter spiritual warfare in all of its many forms, we don't get all scared and run away from it. We're the ones running to the battle. We're like, hey, I'm a Christian. I know what to do. I can help. And Jesus wants that for every Christian. And I've said it before, but deliverance was about a third of the ministry of Jesus. And he told, he commanded his disciples, cast out demons. And then he told them, discipleship is you teaching them to do everything that I'm teaching you to do, right? Everything. And so deliverance is part of that. And so we need that. We need that for ourselves. You need deliverance teaching so you know how to stay free from the stuff the enemy's coming uh, at you with. Uh, You need this for your families, for your children. You need this for your church community. You need this for the community that you live in. And so this uh, series we're coming into, we're starting today, a series that... uh, I would say I'm calling, but the Lord, this was literally like the Lord just said, write this down. And I wrote the title down and then he's like, yeah, you're going to be doing this and teaching on this. So we're starting a series today called a systematic teaching of spiritual warfare and deliverance. Systematic means it's a teaching in a carefully planned sequence that builds from easier to more difficult topics, including breaking down harder skills into smaller parts. Systematic teaching on spiritual warfare in and deliverance. And so there's four sections of this, 101, 201, 301, 401. Um, each one is going to have three sessions or three sermons. Um, we'll probably just do this as we go. And, you know, we're going to have weeks where we take a break, you know, and we talk about a different topic or we, the Lord has something else for us to focus on that day. And then, and then after that Sunday, you know, we'll jump back in and keep learning about this uh, topic here. And we'll just do that until we're done. I don't know how long that might take based on how many breaks we have. I also am, am very humbled by this because um, I think the you get up to the 401 level and I'm like, Lord, I'm not sure I've experienced some of some of the things in that category. And, and so I don't know. We may just teach through, you know, say level 301 and the 401 might be something that the Lord has for us one day. I, I'm not sure yet. 
Um, but we're going to just be going through this, and the Lord is focusing on this topic. And I don't know if you know this, but he's focusing on this topic in the culture. Uh, there are literal, like, Christian movies coming out, several of them, that are about spiritual warfare and deliverance. You've got the Come Out in Jesus' Name movie. You've got one coming out called Nefarious. You've got one coming out called The Shift. And they're all about spiritual warfare and deliverance. All the prophetic community uh, in, in Christendom right right now over the past year or two has been saying, oh, this coming revival, deliverance is a big deal. Deliverance is coming out of the back room. It's coming to the forefront. God wants his people trained in deliverance, okay, and uh, in spiritual warfare. And so uh, kind of what I want to do, uh, 101, 102, 103, these are the first three sessions, right? Uh, 101, 102, 103, what I want to talk about uh, today what we're going to talk about is what I might call a warfare worldview, um, and I hope to answer this question, what in the world is going on, all right? Uh, 102, which we'll talk about either next week or the week after, um, who, who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? We're going to be looking at Satan. Who is he? And studying Satan. And so that particular weekend, when we, when we study that, just think you can go out to eat with the in-laws like usual, and you'd be like, what would you learn at church today? Well, we studied Satan. We really studied Satan today. It was just so great. Um, and there's a purpose for that. There's a reason for that. And then uh, 103, we're going to talk about where and how is this war waged? You know, where is, where, where is the battlefield? How do we engage in this, in this war? Um, so that's what we're looking at over the next several weeks. As I said, today I want to talk about what in the world is going on, okay? A warfare worldview. Because as I said, most Christians even are, are just tragically unaware of a lot of theology and information that the first century church was keenly aware of. Um, they just knew certain things because they were taught these things. Um, they knew the world was spiritual. They encountered spiritual beings all the time. And, uh, and so they were not unaware as we so often are. And so um, we're often, I think, um, really where I think a lot of you might be today is that you are Luke Skywalker. And you would think with a name like Skywalker, you would know that you were destined for greatness. <laughs> and yet in the first movie, not like the first first movie that came out later, like in the late 90s, but I mean the first movie that's actually the fourth movie, New Hope, 1977. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't have time to explain it. But um, the first movie, 1977 first movie, we find Luke Skywalker not knowing he has a great purpose, sitting on the backside of a desert planet. He's a mechanic, blue-collar job. And he just has, he's, he's dissatisfied with life. He's, he's kind of frustrated. He's upset. Maybe has an anger problem. He's never really known his parents. And he doesn't really know why he's never really known his parents. That's probably eating at him. He might have some father. Well, we know he has some father wounds. I mean, we know that. <laughs> and he's like man I just feel like there's more to life than this you know he maybe wants to be a fighter pilot he knows there's this war he has a vague sense there's this galactic war going on but he think it he thinks it doesn't really affect him very much and then along comes this guy named Obi-Wan Kenobi 
who opens his eyes. And he helps Luke understand that, yeah, the war you've heard about, oh, it's real. It's realer than you know. And actually, you have a very significant role to play in this. And actually, Luke, you have this power inside of you (laughs) that you can utilize that can help you take on even the most dark, sinister, most powerful Sith Lord you could imagine. And hey, even check this out. You've got a really special weapon. It's called a lightsaber. And man, it's powerful. And you're going to learn how to use that. And he helps him understand these things. Well, I hope to be your Obi-Wan Kenobi today. I hope to help you realize that this war you've heard about a few times, you've had a vague sense it's going on, oh, it's very real. In fact, this war that's going on, it's actually the reason you're in this desert place and you feel stuck all the time. It's actually the reason. Yeah, you never really knew your parents and all the junk in your history and your past. Yeah, it's actually the reason this war that's going on. You've got this power inside of you, the same power that rose Christ from the dead that you can utilize. And you've got this weapon. It's called the sword of the spirit. And his word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a light saber. And I'm telling you, it's powerful. And if you learn how to use it and wield it, you can take on the darkest, baddest Sith Lord there is and win. And even that little lightning thing, trick with the hands. I mean, it's just, I don't know if the analogy works for that. But before we get to the fun stuff, your Jedi training, before we get to talking about the force inside of you, the power of the Holy Spirit, before we talk about how to use the sword of the Spirit, your lightsaber, the word of God in this battle to take on the forces of evil, first we just have to know what in the world is going on. (laughs) Why is there a war in the first place? And that's what I want to talk about today. Because a a very serious part of spiritual warfare, one of the most foundational, well, it's probably the most foundational issue there is, is do you trust God? That's where a whole lot of spiritual warfare starts. Do you trust God? Mistrusting God. That's where a whole lot of it starts. And so when we don't know what's going on, we can look at the world and we go, there, Scripture talks about God's all good. He's loving. He's kind. He's all these awesome things. How could a good and loving God allow pain, suffering, evil in the world? That's a good, that's a good question. If we don't understand the, what's going on in the world, that question right there can cause us to mistrust the heart of God and separate us from the one who can help us win every battle that we ever face. And so what is going on in the world? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us the most famous verse ever in spiritual warfare for our struggle or our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, the world powers. 
is another translation. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now you have to understand that last one is not mentioning the spiritual forces. And these first few uh, categories are talking about natural rulers. No, every single one of these mentioned in this verse is talking about a spiritual ruler over the world. It's talking about like in an army, there's rank and file. You know, there's the general, there's the colonel, there's the commanders, there's this, there's this. And, and it's telling us that the army of darkness is situated with authority. There's a rank, there's different levels. Remember, Jesus said this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. There's different kinds, there's different types. And it's literally listing, there's rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The heavenly realms. First heaven is us, air we're breathing, physical world. Second heaven is between here and third heaven, which is where God is, okay? Second heaven is what our, our minds, our spirits tap into, our thought life taps into second heaven, okay? So when it's talking about the heavenly realms, we're not talking about far out in outer space, okay? We're talking about the spiritual dimensions of life, Okay, that's mostly second heaven stuff. And you've probably heard that verse before. You're like, yeah, okay, I get it. Our battle, there's a, there's a war going on. So here's a question. Why is there warfare in the first place? If God is good, how could he allow a world where there is war in the natural, where there's war in the spirit, where there's warfare? I mean, we all know there's an enemy, right? We'll get to be talking about him real soon. You know, Satan, the devil, Lucifer. How could a good God make an evil being like that? If God made evil, then isn't God evil? You ever wondered these things? You could talk about why is there sin, death, suffering, um, evil in the world? And you can, well, we can trace it back to the fall. It all came in at the fall. Well, at the fall, there was an enemy. And he was evil. How could a good God allow this evil thing around his children? If I were God. You ever hear people say that? I hear people say that all the time. What a proud statement, by the way. But if I were God, I would never let this happen. I would never do this. But these are good questions. These are good questions to ask. So what in the world is going on? This is actually the greatest question people have been asking down through the ages. In fact, studies have been done in our generation and previous generations in America. Number one, people, number one question people ask in relation to God is not, is God real? The number one question is, how could God allow all the pain, suffering, and evil in the world? It's the number one question, and it actually goes back centuries. It goes back a few millennia even. People have been wrestling with this. Epicurus was a contemporary of Aristotle in the 3rd and 4th century BC. And he posed this question. He was a philosopher, a teacher like Aristotle. And he posed this question that has become known as the Epicurean paradox or the Epicurean dilemma. And this is how he said it. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. He's not all powerful if that's the case. Is he able but not willing then he's malevolent. Then he's, he's evil if he's able to stop it, but he doesn't. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Where's evil come from if he's both able and willing? Is he neither able nor willing? 
then why call him God? And he's got a point, right? These are good questions. And many modern atheists have used this philosophical angle to just say, see, God's not real. It's all not true because of this right here. If God's all powerful, if he's all knowing, and if he's apparently good, then why is there evil in the world? And that question right there is directly related to why is there warfare in the world? Why do we have to fight battles? Here's a more specific question for, for Christians. Once you get saved and you get Jesus in you and, you, and some of you, you've had that experience, you're like, oh, I know God's real because stuff happened to me in that moment that I cannot explain. So I know he's real, but then you go out and on Monday morning, you start getting hammered with doubt and worry and fear and you wrestle and bad stuff happens and you're like, where are you? I thought I was in heaven in church on Sunday, and now I think I might be in hell on Monday. What is going on? Anybody ever been there? All of these questions are related. So, why would God allow pain, suffering, and evil? Why would he allow an enemy? Why would he allow warfare? And here's the answer, and this is where we have to start. 1 John 4.16 Because God is love. This is why the world is the way it is. Because God is love. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. It's a beautiful verse. And then there's this huge verse, theological statement. Because God is love. It's who he is. It's his essence. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not self-seeking, which is a really important aspect of God's love. It's selfless love. It's always pointed outward to do what's best for the other. Okay? And it goes on from there and lists many other aspects of what love is, and I have to define this in our culture because we're living in a culture, and this is an aspect of spiritual warfare. It's a plan, tactic, and strategy of the enemy to change people's thinking, to redefine truth. We live in a culture that says love is love. Now, if you define love correctly, I would agree with that statement. 1 Corinthians 13, be patient, kind, selfless, honoring others, If you define love that way, are you allowed to do that to anyone and everyone, regardless of age, race, sex, gender, you know, whether they're a child or an adult, right? Oh, you can love anyone and everyone that way. But our culture is changing it to say love is sex or love is sexuality. That's what they mean, okay? And that is not the case. Love is love, but love is not sexuality. Sexuality is a gift God has given that is tied to your gender to bless marriages, which is between one man and one woman, according to Scripture, okay? And so I don't want to get ahead of us in this series, but that's a plan, tactic, strategy of the enemy to change mindsets, to cause people to get into strongholds so that the enemy can rule over their lives. And so God, (laughs) love is not love. God is love. God is love. His love is patient, kind, it's selfless, and so on. 
What does that have to do with war, pain, suffering, evil? Well, he created mankind, Genesis 1, 26, 27, in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. So you and I are created in the image of God, which means we're created in the image of what? Love. If God is love, then you and I are created in the image of love, which means this. The meaning of life is to love and to be loved. And 99.9% of the time in church, we talk about being loved by God. Receive the love of God. Be loved. You are beloved, you know. And those, that's a very important teaching, you know, receiving God's love, being loved by God. Let yourself be loved by him. Isn't the gospel beautiful? You don't, you can't. God's like, you can't do anything to get to heaven. Just let me love you. Jesus died for you. Just receive it. You know, be my child again. That's the gospel. I mean, that's how you come back into that relationship with him. So we talk a lot about that. What we don't talk about as much is you loving as Christ loves. Jesus, God didn't make you in his image just to receive love. He made you in his image to be able to love like he loves. So your kid has a pet rock. And they love that pet rock. And let me tell you, you can be able to receive love and yet not be able to give love. That pet rock, oh, it receives some of the best love you've ever seen in your life. The way your kid loves that rock. It's getting loved on. It's receiving it, you know. But can that rock love back the way that your daughter or son is loving that rock? No. Why not? Because it's a rock, okay? You and I are made in the image of God. You and I are made in the image of love, not only to be loved, but to be able to love. And here's the deal. A prerequisite of being able to love is total and complete free will. Because a gift that's demanded is no gift at all. It's a duty. It's a payment. It's an obligation. So love that's demanded or forced or coerced or manipulated is not true love. And so for us to be able to love as God loves, we have to be totally and completely free. God is totally and completely free. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But he always only chooses what's good because he's love. And so God wants people in his image who are totally free, who can choose to love who can not only he can love, but that can love back, love each other and love him. But we have to be totally free. Because if we're not free, then we're robots. And God's not looking for robots. He's looking for lovers. And so God has given us total and complete free will. Some people have said this, you know, if I was God, I would never let people do the stuff that people do on this earth. And some of you parent like that. You, I will never let my child, no, I will never do this. And why would God let people do this or do that? All the evil in the world. Why would he do that? Go read 1 Corinthians 13 and look for the part where it says love is controlling and manipulative. 
And love makes other people do what it wants them to do. You won't find it because that's not an aspect of what love is. Love is about selflessly blessing, helping, giving, to bestow value and honor on someone else. And so that's what God is always doing for us. And so in the garden, there's a plethora of choices. We know scientists now tell us there's thousands, if not tens of thousands, of fruit-bearing plants, if you count plants, not just trees. And then he says there's one tree that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One choice that's bad, tens of thousands of choices that are awesome. God puts this choice, and he says, don't eat of that, because the day you eat of it, you'll die. I've said before, I don't think that was a curse from God or a punishment even. I don't think death is a punishment. I think it's a natural consequence of being cut off from the source of life. And so he's just warning them, if you choose, this is a choice that's other than me. You've known good, and you've known only good. If you eat of that, you'll know good and evil. You'll try to be your own God. It will separate you from me. And just like a branch is cut off from a tree, it might have leafy fruit for a while, but that branch is dead. So don't eat of it, right? He warns them in his love. So love explains what's going on. Love makes sure everybody knows the deal. But then it gives freedom. And so you and I are free to choose. And of course, we all know we've made some really, really bad choices. Now think about this. This is where we start to go, yeah, but. Yeah, but. I understand that, but. God could just limit, like, the worst evil, right? So yeah, give us freedom, but, like, if somebody goes to try to go into a school to do a school shooting, then, then, then the trigger won't work every time. If I were God, that's how I would do it. You know, many philosophers have thought about these things. It's like, okay, all right, let's play that game. You stop that, those triggers. Well, what about, what about this infraction? You know, doing this down here is pretty bad too. How about we stop all that? Okay, yeah, if people try to do that, then, then it's a kill switch. They just shut down, can't do it, right? Well, when you study that out, you pretty much realize every major evil comes from lesser evil thoughts. Where do you draw those lines to limit evil in people? And there's this, also this principle Greg Boyd talks about of, it's a principle of proportional power. So God has given you power and influence. As a, you have power over your life, over your choices. Let's say I give you $100, and you have total free will, choice. You can use that $100 to bless someone selflessly, or you can use it selfishly to bless yourself. Okay? So let's say... You use that $100, you give it to a homeless man in Cincinnati. Now, that's, that's pretty cool, right? He's going to feel pretty blessed for maybe a few days. Like, he's going to feel rich for a few days. He's going to live it up. You really blessed him. That's awesome. If you chose to use that selfishly on yourself, you buy a few cases of beer, or maybe you, you get, some, get some pot or whatever it is, you, you use it on yourself, feed your selfish pleasure, right? Feel pretty good for a day, two, whatever, and, and you're done. Now let's say I give you a million dollars. Now you have a lot more power, don't you, in that million dollars. If you use it for good, how much more blessing could you do? Oh my goodness. 
You could do a lot more blessing. You could do a lot more good with that much more power and influence. Now let's say you use it for the bad. Oh my goodness. You could hire your own cartel, buy your own inventory, and start your own drug ring, right? With a million dollars. It's amazing, right? Here's my point. If God limits the evil down, he's also limiting your capacity to do good and to love. And so God goes, no, I want people who are free, totally free, because in an ideal world, if they will love, it will be beautiful. It's like me. It's who I am. And I want lovers, not robots. And so God has given us total and complete free will, which means there's the potential for us to choose things that are other than God, which of course would be really, really, really bad. A lot of modern people have also said, well, what about hell? I just could never serve a God who would throw people into hell. Let me ask you a question. Does God choose hell for people or do people choose hell for themselves? G.K. Chesterton said, hell is God's great compliment to human free will. What does he mean by that? God is love. Love honors and values the other person which means love honors and values the choice of the other person, even when that choice is something that you do not want. God says in scripture, I believe it's in Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If we see someone wicked die, you know, when Osama bin Laden was killed, some of you may have cheered. Oh, yeah, I hate that guy. You took pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus was not taking pleasure. And now we know God executes judgment. I'm not saying judgment doesn't need to happen. I'm not saying God doesn't judge because that's, we absolutely know that's not true. God says in his word, I take no pleasure in it. It has to happen. It's a thing that happens, but I don't rejoice in it. He says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. And so even if people choose, God's up there going, here's, here's what's going on in the world. Here's how this works. You have a choice. Of course, we fell, ruined everything. Don't worry. God enters into the story to redeem. Redeem means to make up for. So when we say, I love God, he's my redeemer, that's become such a church word that we don't even know what redeemer means. He's my maker, upper, forer. God makes up for everything wrong I've ever done. But he's also able to make up for the pain, suffering, and evil in the world. If you will trust him. God gave me this on the lawnmower a few years ago. I'm out there, boom, 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 mowing the lawn. And I'm like, Lord... I'm thinking about the pain, suffering, and evil in the world, the ways I've participated in it, the way it's affected me. I'm like, you know, I was kind of in, um, I have a little more of a melancholy bent. I was in a more melancholy season. I was like, you know, why'd you leave us here? Adam and Eve, you ever blame Adam and Eve? They screwed this all up. 
how are we going to get along in heaven? We're all just going to want to go after them. It's like, ah, there you are. <laughs> I was kind of having one of those moments on the lawnmower. And I thought, ah, if I were God, one of those brilliant moments, if I were God, I know what I would have done. I mean, we, we'd die anyway. I would have scrapped them. As soon as they messed up, started over, made some new people. <laughs> Giving them some better names, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some cool, better names. I can't think of it. But you put them in the garden, start over. Those people mess up. Scrap, start over. It's like the movies, you know, like Groundhog Day or, or for God, though, you know. Nope, you messed it up. Just keep trying until s- some people get it right to where we have the world where everybody's free and choosing, but it's all perfect. Why didn't you do that, God? And the Holy Spirit's like, here's why. Because <laughs> my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And this statement dropped in my spirit. God's not a perfectionist. He's a redeemer. God's in control, but he's not a control freak. When your kids mess up, say they're four or five years old, have their first major mess up, they, they punch, you know, another kid at daycare in the face. Ugh, that's utter hatred. War comes from this. Uh, you're up for adoption, scrapping you, starting over. I will have perfect kids in my house. Is that what happens? No. What do you do? You enter into the story. You enter into their world. You get down. You, 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 you discipline in some form. The discipline is to train and to correct so that it doesn't happen again, right? So they learn and grow, but then hopefully if you're a decent parent, you show grace, you show love to why? To remove shame from them. So the re- when they're 25, they're like, yeah, but I hit people in the face when I was five and I just, this is who I am. No, you show grace and love to remove the shame. You show forgiveness. You cover over while you're disciplining, training, and correcting. You know why you do that? Because that's what love does. That's what God does in Genesis 3. Oh my goodness, what did you do? Oh my Did he already know? Yeah, when your kid got the cookies and they got the chocolate on their face and you go, oh my goodness, what did you do? Did you get in the cookie jar? You know what they did. Why are you asking to engage their spirit in a process of thinking about what they did and why they did it so that this is the beginning of the process to learn and to grow and to get past it and you discipline and you train and you correct and then you cover over because that's what love does. And so God's not a perfectionist. He's a redeemer because he's a lover. And so does he know all this stuff is going to happen in advance? Oh, absolutely. But apparently God believes his love is so strong and so awesome that it can make up for any evil committed on this earth. And so I forgot to finish this part about hell. (laughs) So some people choose, as God enters into their picture, into their story, to help them train, correct, discipline, but also encourage, remove sin, remove shame. And some people goes, get get off of me. I don't want your help. Stay away from me. Forget you. I'll do it on my own. Thank you very much. And some people do that their entire lives. And then they die. 
And God, there will be a judgment because there is an age coming, the next age, (laughs) where we will live in perfection with God forever. And it'll be amazing. And there will be no more crying or dying, sickness, pain, suffering, evil. There will be no more warfare. It will be amazing. That's where God's trying to get us. But he's not going to allow sinful, rebellious people into that kingdom or else it's going to be just like this one. (laughs) And so there's going to be a judgment. And anyone who is not submitted to King Jesus and his redemption and his forgiveness and his training correction will not enter that kingdom. There will be that day. And that is part of his goodness. And that is part of his love. And he's given us all time on this earth to choose and decide what kind of person we want to be and where we want to end up. And so if a person persists their whole life saying, I don't want you, God, then at that day, God will say, okay, I will give you what you chose your entire life. The definition of heaven is God's presence. It's not heaven because the streets are gold. It's not heaven because angels are there. It's heaven because God is there, and he's awesome, and he's everything. The definition of hell is total absence of God's presence. It's not a place where God tortures people. God won't be there, but that is precisely what will make it torture. Not only will God not be there, some people are like, well, I got friends in low places, and I sing that at the bar with my friends, Garth Brooks, and and I'll sing that in hell with all my friends, and we'll all go to hell together, and it's just great. At least I won't be alone. I'm sorry, you have a misconcept, a conception of what hell is. There will be no relational friendship in hell. Why is that? Because God made it. Hell is a place where God is absent, and he's given you what you've chosen your whole life, which is not God, So it's totally devoid of anything that God created that is good. What did God create? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Relational love and friendship, that was his idea. Ecclesiastes says God gives the ability to enjoy life and to enjoy the good things. You ever go through things that you normally would enjoy, but you're in such a bad season that you're going through them? You know, you go to the lake to fish or you go to Kings Island with your kids and you're having such a horrific season of life that you're not even enjoying it. You're like, I don't want to be here. This has lost its joy for me. Anybody have a season like that? Yeah. God gives you the ability to enjoy all things. Wow. You won't have an ability to enjoy anything in hell. Because that's of God. Do you see what I'm saying? Totally, fullness of joy is in his presence. There's going to be no joy there. He is the, the prince of peace. Perfect peace for those who keep their eyes on him. He won't be there. You will have no peace. Utter torment. Inner torment. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Full of regret for eternity. It's utter darkness. So it's like solitary confinement. And you might hear Some other people are there by their screams and weeping and gnashing. But you won't be able to commune with them and go get drunk at the bar with them. I don't want to get too crazy theologically today or cause too much of a stir. But the scriptures say God gives wine to make the hearts of men glad. All right. 
take that out and rest chew on it this week. You're, there's no bar in hell where you can get drunk with your friends. That's my point. And getting drunk is a sin. There's my disclaimer. <laughs> That's right. I don't want to get the emails. Some of you were like, I am typing the email while I, oh, 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 disclaimer. Okay, never mind. All right. <laughs> so if a person lives their whole life and says, I don't want God, forget God. If God was God, if God's real, he never would have let happen to me. Happen. I hardened my heart my whole life. Or I just thought God wasn't real, secular humanism, human pride. And so at judgment, God goes, okay. And he doesn't take delight in it. I've tragically seen some Christians laughing about how people will go to hell. And they're so puffed up in pride, but we know God and all. You're, and and they're, they're, it's a defensive thing because they're being attacked by atheists or whatever about their faith. And they just start hating on the atheists because you're going to go to hell. Ha, ha, ha. And it's like, ooh, gross. That's your own insecurity and defensiveness. God doesn't laugh and take pleasure in the death of the wicked. So love will honor and value the choice of someone, even if it's something that is horrific. And this is why some Christians are like, think the, they, they think it's annihilationism. And when we get to eternity, we'll just, well, God will judge. And then the evil people, they just, poof, he ceases to exist. You know, like the horse has a broken leg. You shoot it in the head to, I mean, in the old days, not now. Okay. But you, <laughs> another disclaimer, but you take it out of its misery. And some people think that's what God's going to do. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It says everlasting torment, everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. That's what the Bible says. Okay. And they think annihilationism would be a more merciful thing. It might be more merciful, but it's not as loving. Because love goes, I hate this, but this is what you've chosen and I will let you have it. And I, will on, I made you to be an eternal being. And if I were to extinguish you just because you disagreed with me, then that is to devalue your choice. And to devalue you as what I made you to be. And so God goes, I won't do that. And here's this place that I actually created for the devil and his angels, but for those who listen to them in their lives and give in to them, that's where you'll end up too. So why does hell exist? Because God is love. Why is there pain, suffering, and evil in the world? Because God is love. And he gives us freedom. And he's not a controller. He's not a manipulator. That is actually the essence of a lot of spiritual warfare, on the other hand. Because that is what the enemy wants, is to control and to manipulate. But that brings us to, well, let's answer this question. But wait a second. Doesn't, didn't God know that all this bad was going to happen from the beginning? Yes. Then how could he be good? Why would he go through with it? Why would he create it? Well, as some brilliant theologians have said, an all-good God could only allow for all this. The only way he could allow for all this is unless he knew that there would a greater good would result. Let me put that in plain English. The only way an 
all good God would allow for all this, the pain, suffering, evil, is if he knew there would be a result in the end that would be better, not in spite of it, but even because of it. That's what I call the glory of God's redemption, the glory of redemption. Redemption means to make up for. God is not evil. He has caused no evil. He has never done any evil. But he is so good that if we trust him and if we invite him in, if we allow him, he can make up for any pain, suffering, and evil that we've went through that our lives are better off in the end and especially in eternity, better off than they would have been, not in spite of it, but they're better off even because the bad stuff happened. I'm not going to get into that today in detail. There's several scripture stories I could show you, such as the story of Joseph, the story of Esther. We could simply look at the cross. You could argue that's the worst atrocity or the worst sin that people have ever committed is murdering Jesus, the Son of God. And through the most evil act, it says he died at the hands of sinful men, which means the men chose it, and they did. It says if the rulers and powers and authorities knew what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's talking about Satan and his demons. If they knew what God was going to do through, it says Satan entered Judas, by the way, to betray him, to get him, to get them to murder him. So literally demonic influences, crucify him, crucify him, kill him, ah, give us Barabbas, ah, they kill him. They think they've won. God takes the most evil act in history that people chose, by the way, that demons wanted, that people agreed with, killed Jesus, and God goes, I'm so good and loving that I'm going to use that to make up for everything. Oh, the wisdom of God. (laughs) And that's what he did. He used the worst, most sinful act that people could think up. And he used it to bring about the best thing that's ever happened in our human history, which is the redemption of all who simply go, you know what? You're right. I am fallen. I am sinful. Will you take me back and I'll live, do my best to live how you want me to live? The salvation of all who would believe. That's how good God is. And so he's a redeemer. He's making up for all of this. And that's why Romans 8, 28 says, we know that God works all things together for the good of those that love him. So how do we know things are going to be better in eternity? Two quick examples. There's a lot of these types of examples I could give you to just help us give us a concept But Matthew Fontaine Murray is known as the father of modern oceanography. And I think he was riding a horse. This is like back in the 1800s or something. And he broke his leg. And at that time, you know, they didn't have all the stuff we have to get him back on his feet quickly. So he's bedridden while his leg is healing up. And you just look at that in and of itself. Isolated incident. Dude snaps his leg and has to sit there forever for weeks in a bed. That's a bad thing, right? That's just a bad thing that happens. Probably didn't feel too good. His daughter's sitting there, and she would read him 
most days read him the Bible. And there's a verse in the Psalms where it says that God basically created everything, all this, all that, all the birds, all the animals, and all the fish that swim the paths of the sea. Now, Matthew Fontaine Murray was in the Navy, and he said to himself, he had a moment of inspiration. He said, if God says there's paths in the sea, then when I get out of this bed, I'm going to go find them. When his leg healed up, he went and began to study the ocean. And he, you know what he discovered? There are literal paths in the sea. The, current, the ocean currents that now we know, or scientists know, govern not only ocean life, but like weather patterns and weather currents. And when we do shipping containers, we, we get on the paths of the sea and it helps things go a lot faster and a lot better. And this guy is known as the father of modern uh, oceanography. Why? Because God said it in his word. But why was he there? Why did he have that moment? Because he broke his leg and was laying in a bed. So have you ever heard a testimony like that? Where somebody's like, you know, this happened, but it's horrific. But actually, because it happened, all this amazing stuff happened in my life after. And it was because of the horrific thing. And so it didn't feel good at the time, but I'm actually grateful for it. And my life is way better now than if it had never happened. Yeah, but pain, suffering, and evil. How could God allow that? Okay. Would you allow a stranger to take a knife and cut open your child, cut open their chest. No, that seems horrific, but I would contest and I would suggest it depends on who the stranger is and what their intent is. If the stranger is dressed like a clown and is just some crazy guy, that's going to be a bad day, okay? If the stranger is God, or I'm sorry, if the stranger is a physician, and you've, he's a stranger, you don't really know him, but it's Dr. So-and-so, and the knife is a scalpel, and it turns out your kid has cancer, and there's a tumor, and they need to go in and get it, well, then you might let him. Now, is an isolated act of cutting open a child's chest with a knife a bad thing? As an isolated incident, yeah, that's not good. You might even say it's an evil And I won't even get into how philosophers and theologians define evil, and you could define that as an evil act. It's a short, it's a bad thing in and of itself. So would you as a parent allow a short-term evil to result in a greater good? A cancer-free child? I think we would all agree, yes. So how are we all going to be better off because of sin, death, pain, suffering? Well, let's take it to the eternal We are going to know God in eternity in a way greater than the angels know God. (sighs) Because they know him for the fullness of his goodness and his glory. And when we get there, we will too. Right now, we don't know the fullness of that, right? Now we see darkly as in a mirror. Then we shall know fully even as we're fully known. We'll see face to face like they do. So we'll know that too then. But we'll know something then that they don't know. We'll know the grace of God. Because angels have not ever sinned. So they don't know what it's like to be forgiven. And that's a different level of love. So I think our song might raise just a little bit higher than theirs in eternity. To know him in a greater way. And I believe in eternity we're still going to be free. So how in the world in eternity are we going to be free in heaven and still sin will never come in? Because we know where that road leads now.
we've played that game. We know the horrific consequences. And for eternity, we're like, never again. (laughs) After that, now we know the fullness of glory and we'll never go back. And so we'll know God in a greater way than Adam and Eve knew him in the garden. We'll know him in a greater way than even angels. And then we'll be in eternity forever and we'll never sin and we'll be free. We'll never sin because we don't want to because we tried it. Wow. So maybe God knows what he's doing. All right, which brings us to this. What about that pesky enemy? What about that dude? I mean, if God is good, okay, I get what you're saying. Like, God's good, loving. He created us in love. He's given everybody freedom. We really have screwed that up. Okay, I get all that. And, and, and God's still good to create it because there could be this greater good in the end. He can make up for it all. Okay, I'm with you. I'm tracking. But what about this devil guy? What about the enemy? You ever gotten there theologically? You're like, hold up. If there, if there was no, I understand choice and all If there was, where do, where the, why did they choose the bad? There was this devil guy there. This powerful enemy who deceived. Let's not forget about that. How could a good, all good and all loving God create such a nefarious, horrifically evil entity? Do you know the answer to that question? He didn't. He did not create a horrifically evil, nefarious entity. He created what scripture and most scholars believe Isaiah 14 is addressing Satan and it gives him a name, Lucifer, which means light bearer, morning star. And God laments in Isaiah 14 about how he has fallen. God didn't create an evil entity. God created a beautiful light bearing angel and we'll get way more into who he is uh, next time we talk about this. Some, say, some would say he is, was the head angel over all the other angels. Profoundly good, profoundly beautiful. Profound power with the capacity for good. That illustration I used earlier, million dollars, this dude's got hundreds of millions of, this guy's got trillions of dollars in the sense of the power and the influence and the beauty that God gave to him. Amazing capacity for good. But we know that he chose otherwise, and it's very simple. Apparently, angels have free will too. And this one, and not just this one, but according to Revelation, about a third of the angels also chose other than God. And so scripture says they were cast to the earth. They're down here. So, okay, I understand. Okay, now I'm tracking God didn't create evil. God did not create evil, period. He created the world with the possibility for evil because it's other than God and it's choice. That's what God created because God is love. But he created Lucifer as a good light-bearing angel. Lucifer chose. He became proud. He wanted to be like God, and so he fell. The other angels fell. Okay, but even if that's the case... Why does God allow them in the garden? Now, isn't that the question? And this is how we think about it. We think about how evil Satan is, Lucifer. 
I mean, this is like axe murderer type of dude, right? And yes, he's dressed nice and he looks good, but that's, he's so deceptive. But that's who he is. And God lets him around his kids? I, if I were God, I would never do that. I would never allow that type of person around my kids. And we're people, and maybe I, maybe I do allow some of those people around my kids, but I don't know that's who they are, right? So I don't have, I'm not all-knowing. But God's all know. God knew better. How could God allow this? And this is the last concept I want to talk about today. And by the way, all of this is profoundly important for when we talk about you get into a prayer session and a Christian is going, why am I struggling with depression? All of what we're saying is profoundly important. And I hope you understand that. We're laying a a foundation here for theology of how this works. And the way the world is. And so this is the last concept I want to introduce today. And it's the concept of what I would call spiritual laws. In other words, yes, God has given freedom. Yes, when Satan fell and the other fallen angels, he, he sends them to the earth. You ever think, like, is there some other galactic planet on the far side of the universe with, with people or beings? Why didn't he send them there? Or, or how, here's, here's a better one. Solitary confinement in some, you know, some other planet, right? Why here? Why with us? And I think this concept of spiritual laws helps explain that. What do I mean by spiritual laws? There seems to be spiritual laws, just like the laws of gravity, just like the laws we have in our government that, that govern you know, people. You can do this, you can do that. And if you break these laws, oh, you're going to prison, that type of thing. There seems to be that in a spiritual sense um, that governs people, but also governs the angelic fallen beings. We get a picture of this. Well, let me just say it this way. Second Peter 2 verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness, the literal phrase there is in gloomy dungeons, to be held for judgment. And then he goes on and says, He will not spare people, basically, when they, when they choose bad and sin. But he's saying, God actually has already done this. There are some fallen angels that are not roaming around the earth tempting people. They're in a gloomy dungeon by themselves, in solitary, in confinement, waiting for judgment. And now we read other scriptures that say, no, Satan's roaming around like a roaring lion. Yeah, because he's not one of those. So apparently, and we might get into this another time, there are some fallen angels that have broken some of the spiritual laws, and God goes, you can't do that anymore. You're, you're stuck, and you're waiting for judgment. But there are some, perhaps, I don't know, the smartest of them, the most brilliant of them, the most crafty of them, the way the King James renders Genesis 3, for the serpent was more subtle or subtle than all the others of, of God's creation. You know, a true con artist, you don't know they're a con artist because they're so deceptive, you don't even know it. And I would like to propose to you that Satan is awfully evil, terribly evil. But apparently he's playing by these rules and God's letting this play out. What do I mean by the rules? We get a glimpse of it in Job chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Job chapter 1. It says, one day the angels, the phrase there is sons of God, which means high-ranking angelic beings. There's ranks of angels. 
A lot of times when it says angel, it just means messenger angel or guardian angel. Those are lower rank, all right? Sons of God angels, we're talking high profile angels, came to present themselves before God and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, now you might be thinking, is this pre-fall? But you know, pre-fall of Satan, I mean, but you know from the rest of, you know, just this, this conversation that he has already fallen. He is already evil and God knows it and he knows it, okay? So he comes into God's presence and God says, where have you come from? Satan answered from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth, you know, this dump of a planet down where you sent me. You know, that's where I came from. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God's like, have you considered Job? He's like, I know your deal. You're trying to find people who, do, who will not worship me, but who will listen to you. And by listening to you, they give you their authority. So you get empowered and you've always wanted to be like God. So that's what you're trying to do. And hey, have you considered Job? He's, he fears me. He shuns evil. God's bragging on Job. He's saying, try him. You won't get him. This one's mine. And I can fear the feel, fear of the Lord in the room right now. People are like, oh, I hope I'm not on God's list of being so awesome. <laughs> Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Next few verses. In one day, enemies come, attack Job. Take, kill a bunch of his servants, take a bunch of his animals, kill all of his employees, so to speak. Take all of his animals, take his livestock. Then a storm comes, tornado hits the house where his kids are having a party. It falls in on him, all of his kids die, same day. And lightning comes down from heaven and consumes the rest of his uh, livestock. All in one day, he loses everything. Now, if that happened to anybody in this earth, in this life, in this uh, generation, we would do what Job's friends did. What did you do? You must have ticked God off. We blame God for what scripture clearly shows us is the attack of the enemy. The attack of the enemy. And the, I don't have time to get into this story in particular, but here's my point. God says to Satan, on the, you can, I'm gonna allow you to do some things, but on the man himself... Do not lay a finger. Well, why God, Job was righteous. Why would God allow Satan to mess with his kids and his family? I don't know. Maybe because they had such crazy parties that it says Job would go make sacrifices for them after the parties because he was really afraid that they were going to be judged. Geez, I wonder what kind of parties those were. Perhaps his kids were giving authority and influence and open doors to the enemy to allow for this to happen. But on the man himself, don't lay a finger. Boundary drawn around Job. I'm going to allow some things, but I'm not going to allow some things. Here's my point. There are some spiritual laws that are governing what Satan, what the enemy is allowed to do in the same way that they govern what we're allowed to do and what we have power and authority to do. Now, with that in mind, go to Genesis 3. And I'm telling you, Scripture is not a systematic teaching. 
It's not a bullet point, this is how it works, step one. That's not how scripture's written. It's a story. So the story just reads and we go, what? Because we don't understand how things are working. Once you understand how things are working, then you read scripture and you went, oh. And then you look at your life and go, oh. So now with this concept of spiritual laws, boundaries, Satan has to play by the rules. Let's go to Genesis 3. The original temptation, the original fall. Now the serpent was more crafty. And he comes along one day and he says to Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Already putting the conversation in a way that makes us distrust God. He knows what God said. You can eat from any tree, not just one. Did God say you couldn't eat from any tree? Jeez, sounds kind of harsh to me. That's the implication, right? Well, God didn't say that, Eve says. God said we can't eat from this one tree. And we can't touch it or we'll die. And then here comes the lie. Oh, you won't die. God knows if you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. Hey, see you later. Have a nice day. Well, got to get going. He's not even around when they eat of the fruit. So think about this. Did God allow an axe murderer to come into the presence of his children who has this horrible evil intent, grab them by the neck, grab a piece of fruit, and like, eat it, eat it. I'm more powerful. I'm exerting my force on you and I'm making you eat it and I'm so evil and you're going to do it and then you'll worship me and it'll all be mine. Is that what happened? No. God has put boundaries on Satan and apparently he has no power, authority, or influence except that which we give him by agreeing with him. So, Genesis 3 actually reads more like this. These, by the way, most likely were not infant toddler children. These were most likely grown adult children who are very smart and very wise. And God says, hey, you know the one tree? Don't ever eat of it. Don't even touch it. You'll die. Don't do that. Do they have everything they need to resist the sleazy car salesman? Yes, all they have to do is go, uh, no. I don't know you, but I know my father, and he said this, so I'm trusting his word. Who are you again? And it's over. So God puts them in a garden and gives them a choice, and yes, a guy comes along. And yes, he has tons of power, and yes, he's, he's, really, he's really something. But all he can do is talk and suggest The problem is, they agreed with him. So is the problem in the world today for us that Satan's so evil and has so much power and we should be afraid of him? Or is the problem mostly that we get deceived and we agree with him? He's a deceiver. He gets us to do what he wants, all the while us thinking it's what we want. And then in our day, a lot of the time thinking God's totally fine with it too. He's a deceiver. And we'll get into this in later weeks, but this deception comes usually not on billboards 
it comes in your own thoughts. Spiritual warfare happens at the speed of thought. And you've got a lightsaber. And isn't that lightsaber cool that, um, I think it's a pretty good analogy, that it not only can do some offense, but it's like they use it as a shield to block the flaming laser blaster arrows of the stormtroopers. Spiritual warfare happens at the speed of thought. Not of God. Get out of here. So, what have we established? Most spiritual warfare revolves around us trusting God or mistrusting God. So if we don't know what's going on in the world or how this all works, what do we do? Oh, I would never do this if I was God. God, don't think God's real. Oh, oh, oh. Those are actually lies. And we actually continue to partner with the enemy as we believe and agree with them. But if we have a context for, oh, God is love. And doesn't it scare you a little bit how profoundly powerful your choices are? It should. That should put the fear of the Lord in you. You know, we tend to view everything in eternity, eternal standards, eternal ramifications. So scripture says you'll have to give an account for every careless word you speak. Oh, Every time I hear that one, oh gosh, I said a few careless words yesterday. And we always think about one day in judgment. Perhaps God warns us of that. Because he knows how much it will impact your day to day. That when you speak a careless word that's not of God, you are empowering the enemy in your life. You're opening the door and saying, come right on in and have your way. And I will continue to partner with you. And perhaps God knows these things. So perhaps he wants us to know these things so that we can begin to fight back. So Luke Skywalker (laughs) Time to wake up. There's a war raging. It's the reason, it is the reason you are struggling in the day to day. But I've got really good news for you. You've got a power inside of you as a believer in Jesus, the presence of Jesus himself. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got weapons that are powerful to demolish strongholds and set captives free. And so today is the beginning of us waking up to this and entering into our training as warriors of Jesus who know how to do war. I love David in scripture because we think in our world we have to choose. Are you a lover or a fighter. I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. Some of y'all are like, I'm not a lover. I'm definitely a fighter. And yet what we see in the heart of David is he's both. And he can write a beautiful love song to God. And he can dance and get undignified. And he can provide for Mephibosheth. If you don't know what that means, go read it later. He can, he can do great acts of kindness and love. And then he can strap his sword on and get his sling, and he can go take out legions of giants. He's a lover and a fighter. And so is our God. 
And that's who he wants us to be. People of profound capacity for love, but powerful people who can take on demonic forces of evil and win and be confident in it and not be worried and not be afraid. You're like, oh, I know what this is. I know how to, I know how to deal with this. And you just engage the battle. And that's what he wants. And so we're beginning that today. I want to pray. And then if you need prayer as you're leaving today, our ministry team will be available. <sighs> and so, Lord, I just thank you for our time together today. And, Lord, I just pray right now that we would begin to engage the spiritual battle, to begin our training with you. And so if this is a battle over truth and deception so that we're not duped into agreeing with our enemy, then we need to know truth. We need to know your word. So I pray that you would just get a hunger and a thirst and even just drop some fear of the Lord in there to get us in the word of God, to start our lightsaber training, so to speak. And God, I just feel like the other big thing that you're highlighting today, and this is really important, church, if you just listen to me, you have to start getting really good at repentance. Because you can get deceived in small ways. You can believe lies in small ways. You can do things sometimes you don't realize aren't good or aren't of God. And they do open the door of your life to greater oppression, greater spiritual warfare, to give the enemy place in your life. And if you don't repent, and if you don't recognize that's not good or that's not of God, that foothold can grow into a stronghold and you can have a lot bigger problems on your hands. And so I just want to encourage you today, church, keep a short account with God. And this is where the presence of the Holy Spirit is so important and so good. That when you stay close to his heart, he will make you very aware when you've done something that's not good or not of God. And all you have to do is pray to the Father and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. That, that thing I just said, the way I just treated my spouse, the way I just disciplined my kids, the way I just acted at work, I'm so sorry, Lord, that was not of you. And I, I apologize, Lord, please forgive me. And then once you've prayed those prayers, and whatever it is, you looked at pornography, you drank a little too much last night, whatever it is, Lord, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And Lord, in the name of Jesus, I renounce any bindings of the enemy that came into my life through this thing. And I take back all authority I submitted to the enemy through that. And I break those bindings and I command the enemy to leave now in Jesus' name. Father, I nail all this to the cross and I ask you to send it all away from me. And Lord, I thank you for the peace and the grace that you're giving me today. Man, if you will learn to do that, to pray that way, every time you sin, every time you stumble, keep a short account with God, here's what happens. The door gets cracked and then you slam it back shut. The door gets cracked and then you slam it back shut. And the church is so ignorant on these things because we never talk about it. That people's doors, they crack their own door. And then the enemy flings it wide open and a host of demons come in and live with them. And they think it's just part of their life. They think it's just genetics or they think it's just how things are. And they live as total captives when they don't have to if they would realize the truth and begin to do warfare 
And repentance, I'm telling you, today is warfare. Repentance is warfare, church. And so right now in your heart, if there's anything between you and God, anything you need to make right between you and God, things that only you did that no one else knows about, or Scripture tells us if there's things between you and other people, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And if while you're offering your gift at the altar, at church, so to speak, you remember someone has something against you, leave your gift. Man, leave church. Go make it right with them. And it's not just because God cares about relationships. It's because (laughs) don't let a bitter root grow up among you. Bitterness becomes unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will become resentment. Resentment can become hatred. And the foothold grows in this massive stronghold in your life. And it can affect many other areas. It can make you physically sick even. And so God tells us in his word what to do. And I just pray, Lord, right now, right now, right now, right now for conviction in your people. Holy Spirit, come. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come right now to hearts that have been shutting down your voice so much that that they can't hear your voice anymore. And and it's maybe even because of a sin in their life or because of some way that uh, they've not been doing what you want them to do. Maybe they've just been neglecting the word or worship or prayer. And Holy Spirit, I just pray right now you will come and convict hearts and bring up things that people need to deal with because it's actually making space for the devil in their life to mess with them, to suppress their faith, to suppress the truth in and through them, to keep them from living how you want them to live. And it's that oppression, that suppression is causing the depression and the anxiety and the suicidal thoughts and all the other things, God, So I just pray for conviction and just bring it up. Some people, it's self-rejection, self-hatred, self-loathing. You don't like yourself, and that's not of God. And there's a reason for that, and we'll dig into that in later weeks. But I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and dig that up right now and begin to uproot that. Anything that's hindering us from you. Any ways we've agreed with the enemy by our own pride, by our own sin, or by our own woundedness. And the, the, man, I'm telling you, the lies that, that enter into wounds to comfort us are some of the strongest ones to break. Because <sighs> it feels like a lifeline. And I just pray, Lord, you'd uproot those today and expose those today. And, and, and that we would be a people of repentance, continually turning to you. And so we turn to you today, Jesus. We love you. And I pray for those who need Jesus, who need salvation in this place today. And I pray that you would bring it to them. And I pray you give them the courage, Holy Spirit, to take the step of faith, to receive Jesus, and to be baptized. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.